There are a lot of people in the space I operate. And again, there's no barriers to entry just to open a company. To manufacture and to provide the quality and value that I do took a lot of effort. And I knew that there were some brands out there that did a pretty good job. You know, Ralph Lauren, his brand is his lifestyle. And so I didn't want to just create something that didn't have an identity. And so I kind of looked at their company and what he had done and modeled it after that, along with uh, Brunello Cuccinelli. There's another brand that he is an amazing human being. He's a big philanthropist now. And we were able to visit them in uh, Solomeo, which is their headquarters in Italy. But it was pretty cool because when we got there, we, you know, we toured the, toured the village. He, he restored this whole village. And again, going into the lifestyle, like he didn't create a brand. He created good for mankind. He's impacted lots of lives in a great way through the restoration of his village uh, and employing a lot of the people in the area. And I think his company's now valued at a few billion dollars. We were sitting with the, the employees eating lunch and they provide lunch to the employees every day. And it's like three courses. So it was like, it was, it was a really cool experience that that type of experience could be translated into you know, obviously the lifestyle brand that I wanted to create and giving people more than just clothes to wear. In a corporate world where all employees have great leaders with no egos that create fun cultures where people can do their best work, the employees and companies thrive while doing great things for the customers, themselves, and each other. Well, we know that rarely happens. I'm Jeff Palaccio. I have been a leader for over 40 years for every t-shirt size company from small 16 employees to extra large over 1 million. Please join me while I interview outstanding leaders that will share stories of great leadership and not so great. It will help you become a better leader while poking fun at all the crazy shit that happens in corporate America. Hi. I'm Joe Deshawn, and welcome to The Corporate Couch with Jeff Palaccio. Today, Jeff is interviewing Kyle Doherty. Kyle is the founder of Charles & Richards, a design and manufacturing company specializing in custom-made men's clothing. Prior to founding Charles & Richards, Kyle held a variety of sales jobs in the clothing and other industries. Kyle has a Bachelor of Science in Marketing from Kansas University. You can learn more about Kyle at charlesandrichards.com. Let's listen as Jeff talks to Kyle. Kyle, welcome to the uh, Corporate Couch this afternoon. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no, very excited. You're, uh, you're uh, our first fashion clothing uh, guru expert. So, uh, you know, uh, we sat down recently after an introduction from my friend uh, Mark Schaefer, who connected us. So. We had a nice conversation, so thank you for coming on the, the couch today with me. Mark's a great guy. I'm glad he, glad he sent me over your way. Yeah, he, uh, he is. So um, let's get a fun question. Um, people that know you uh, you know, fairly well, what one thing would they be surprised about you? Um, that is, that's a really good question. Well, everybody knows I'm not the most organized, so there's, there's that, but... Uh, because people that don't know me very well, they, they come in and they, they see the shop and things. Um, 
that might be something that a, a, a new person would not really know about me, but I don't know. I'm a really open book. <laughs> there you go. There's no surprises. You, what you see is what you get with Kyle. Pr pretty much, pretty much. I, uh, yeah, I, I don't really have any, anything in the closet, if you will, you know, to, to hide it's my, my brand and it, my brand is my life and my life is my brand, I guess. Um, so I'm fortunate where my family's kind of a part of that. And yeah. So you grew up in Kansas city, went to the, uh, OG, uh, Lee summit high school, right? I did. I did. I was fortunate to be a tiger, uh, for high school did not go to MU, uh, like a lot of my classmates, but yeah, had a great time out in Lee Summit. Spent uh, part of my senior year as a foreign exchange student in Italy. Um, so before high school, Kyle, what was fun for you growing up? You know, in your single digit years and early teens, what what you loved doing? I was always playing a sport. Uh, didn't matter really what it was. My mother was a saint. If we weren't at a practice or a game, we were outside playing football, uh, tag, building forts, I guess, uh, not sports related there, but we just spent every waking moment we could outside. Um, and then they yeah, the organized sports, you know, we were traveling a lot with baseball up until I was in junior high. Um, and then same with soccer and, uh, basketball we didn't travel with, but we had a pretty good team there. And, Really enjoyed playing that up to high school where everybody caught up to me uh, height-wise. So I went from playing center as a eighth grader, uh, just under six foot, to my freshman year of high school, everybody catching up where I didn't really even play guard. So, uh, <laughs> so that shows over. how versatile you were as an athlete, though. You went from a post position to, you know point guard or shooting guard so there you yeah go. and then and then then after that uh yeah didn't didn't play my sophomore year of high school or actually my freshman year of high school I, I didn't play uh didn't end up playing basketball uh, any longer and so ended up running track cross country um put a lot of effort and energy into that uh, and also played varsity soccer my sophomore year of high school as well yeah. as running cross country at the same time and uh realized that was too much so focused on running after that um so you mentioned yeah. building forts so uh, another guest uh, jonathan jones of uh, demdeco um he mentioned as a kid building go-karts so did you build any go-karts because i mm. i did because that's we had that in common jonathan and I. <laughs> yeah i i wish i i got as far as taking apart a couple old lawnmowers um there you go and then my mo my mother wondering what we were doing with, you know, I'm sure gas was spilling everywhere. I mean, we're, I think I was in fifth grade. So my, actually my son's age currently 10 years, 10, 11 years old. And uh, yeah, we took, took apart a lot of stuff, but weren't so great about putting it back together uh, when it came to more of the mechanical side um, <laughs> of engineering, if you will. <laughs> So what, uh, did you have any aspirations as a child, uh, to, when you grew up, you were going to be this, what was this for you? Yeah, it was, uh, I wanted to be at the age of, I think it was nine or 10. I was fortunate to travel a lot as a kid, grew up my mother. I, I speak of her. She, she is a saint. She raised my three brothers and I, and she always made a point to, for us to travel. And so we were fortunate to stay in some, some pretty nice hotels, uh, around 
the we, we traveled within the U.S., but anywhere from Dakotas, Wyoming, uh, down obviously Colorado and whatnot, uh, down to Key West. Um, so I wanted to own hotels. Actually, I wanted to be a hotel entrepreneur, and I loved the word entrepreneur before it became a buzzword. And now I have somewhat of a disdain for it because when I envisioned it, it was, you know, building something great. And, and, and it wasn't a buzzword. It was like, you just get out and you do it. And then, yeah, somewhere along the, along the way, I got into, got into fashion. Um, I've always sewn since I was like four years old. And so it all, it all kind of shifted to uh, building a lifestyle brand. So how did you get into sewing at four? So my, yeah, my great grandmother, uh, Rose, was a the head seamstress at Nelly Dawn, which was a very large ready-made dress company here in Kansas City. We actually had the second largest garment district at the time that she was working uh, full-time. And the second largest garment district in the United States, that is. And so she you know, eventually obviously retired. And when I was born, she was around how old she was when she passed, but she was really big into sewing still and taught taught us how to sew just simple things uh, with felt and a needle. And it was pretty interesting uh, doing that as, as a young kid. Um, but you learn pretty quick when you start poking yourself. So Yeah, four years old. Yeah. <laughs> well, so my, um, my mom immigrated from uh, Italy and she had, you know, they all learned to sew and her sisters, my aunts, and we had the, we had this old singer. We didn't have a big house, a two bedroom, and we had this kind of off area to our living room, where there was kind of a built-in desk and by the radiator. But the sewing machine was right there. It was an old singer. It had the, you know, the big foot pedal, not like a foot pedal, like a platform. Is it tr- yeah, treadle foot. I used to always play with it, you know, just I knew yeah. nothing about sewing. I did have to sew a vest in seventh grade home economics, you know, so that it wasn't the highlight of my academic career uh, at all. But hopefully, hopefully it was able to be worn at least. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yes. Uh, it, in the dark, I, I wore it a lot. Uh, yeah. I could not wear that in public. Um, so did you love clothes growing up? I did not wear a pair of jeans until I was, this is, my mother recently told me this. Um, I was, I think in sixth grade, she said, because my my son uh, is now getting into looking dapper every day. And before he really just didn't care. He'd set out his clothes and he'd get dressed. But now he, he kind of puts himself together. So I was like, oh yeah, you, you did the exact same thing. You didn't wear a pair of jeans until about sixth grade. Wow, that's and phenomenal. Then, um, yeah. And then I became very particular right about that same time about pretty much every facet of my life. I don't know what the switch was, but so, it, it so, happened early. So a couple of questions there, Kyle. So what did you wear while you were building forts? Like what was the attire there? <laughs> <laughs> we uh, in the summer, t- <laughs> it wasn't OSHA approved. That's for sure. Okay. Uh, but we... So shorts were acceptable. Shorts and t-shirt. Okay. Yeah. Shorts and a t-shirt, uh, beat up shoes. Yeah. Just kind of, yeah, that was, that was the time where you just didn't care. Summers, we really didn't care too much, but it was more of the layering, layering time here in the Midwest where you, you've got to throw on more than a pair of shorts and t-shirt in the middle of winter. Yeah. 
So I, I'm not a Mike Wallace, you know, 60 minute style interviewer. I'm, I'm not try. I don't try to put anybody on the spot. So this could be my most probing uh, question I've ever asked a guest. Were you voted best dressed in your high school senior class? <laughs> <laughs> that is funny because I was. Uh, there you go. Oh, see there. <laughs> I was. I was. Um, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, that's, oh, I uh, love that's it. funny you asked that because <laughs> we did this like career day as well, um, where we did like mock interviews uh, through a marketing program I was in in high school, um, and it's like a district wide thing. And I was voted best dressed there as well, so I guess it's no surprise uh, that I got into clothing with the way I was dressing and appreciating what went into it. So, yeah, and I have to say, when I was meeting you for coffee, I did make sure I was kind of dressed, you know, appropriately, you know, be hard. I figured you were going to uh, dress, uh, in, you know, in a high fashion style. Uh, and I also was actually best dressed in my high school class, but it was a very low bar. We had a very apathetic uh, class. So, you know, like I won with like three votes, you know, and I wore hand-me-downs from a my cousin's cousin. Uh, who was older than me, else I would have never won because, you know, I didn't have any good, good clothes. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, the, the, the clothing used to be made very, very well. So when we were, yeah. well, yeah, obviously you're a few years older than I am, but uh, when we were both growing up, clothing was made completely different than it is today. So. Yeah, I, I would agree. Um, so uh, what, what made you go uh, be a foreign exchange student in high school? So my mother traveled, but going back to my mom, she traveled a lot when she was a kid as my grandfather worked for TWA and she spent a lot of time over in Europe uh, or she was fortunate to spend a lot of time in Europe and really encouraged us to get out and experience other cultures. And we had a program with our, with my high school where we would go over to Italy and then they would come over and visit us the following year. Um, and so when that opportunity presented itself, it was my math teacher at the time, actually, that put on the program, or he was the coordinator, I guess. And he said, you're going. And I said, okay. And my mom signed me up for it, and off I went. Yeah, I love it. Uh, and for those uh, millennials, possibly Gen Xers out there, the um, TWA is Trans World Airlines, no longer <laughs> trying to remember the lineage. I, I'm not even sure who where TWA sits in the American United, you know, uh, definitely wasn't Southwest that uh, didn't buy them. I don't know who did, but. Uh, yeah, I, 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 I'm sure there's somebody out there who's yeah. going to comment on that, but I don't remember. Yeah. Um, yeah. They were a big airline back in the day. Um, so you go to KU, did you, uh, you graduate with a, uh, bachelor of science in marketing. Was that your beginning, um, major? And why? And if it no. was, why did you choose it? I uh, I actually went to KU for three reasons: to run track and cross country, uh, a girl, of course, and then uh, to major in architecture. So going back to the hotel entrepreneur, I wanted to major major in architecture, start designing the hotels, and and then you know work for a firm for a little while and break off, get some financing, and build a hotel company. Um, I. Also at the time was sewing uh, with some leather that I 
got from a an upholster in Lawrence, and then I started working with a, a leather shop guy out there, and kind of switched switched my interest uh, to fashion when we didn't have a fashion ish program. I say fashion, I use that more of tailoring, um, kind of a delineation between fashion and tailoring, um, where I didn't know how to do it. Um, so I was creating a luxury brand or what I thought was a luxury brand, uh, my freshman through senior year of college. And then, uh, yeah, ended up switching my sophomore year to marketing uh, through the business school and, uh, didn't think I'd get a marketing or BS in marketing. Um, but that's kind of where I ended up with a natural flow and it allowed me to, it wasn't as intense as the architecture program. And so it allowed me the free time to be outside for one and also sew and start my, my second business essentially. Did you love the, the sewing part and the fashion part so much that you wanted to start that business? Kind of what was your mindset? I mean, for a 20 year old, if you know, to start a business, it's uh, in that, you know, late two thousands. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's 2000, 2006, 2007 is really when I, I actually sold a few bags and I can't say that I made any money because yeah, there wasn't much scalability there. Um, I, I just loved it. Yeah. I just loved it. It was, I've, I've always w worked with my hands. Um, I've always built things from, you know, anything with my, my grandfather, actually going back to when I was a kid, my, my grandfather would hand me a stack of paper scissors and tape when I was sick. I'd go over to their house and I'd watch the movie Hook on repeat. I'd just I'd watch it four times in a day while my parent my my while my mom was at work. And uh I would build all kinds of things with that paper. Anywhere from soccer goals and a soccer ball where I'd play in their basement uh or uh, all the way through uh, I think one time I watched Cool Runnings and I made a mock bobsled so I could Funny. be a part of the team. So, yeah. So always worked with my hands. And then, yeah. you know, the sewing aspects got made fun of quite a bit when I was younger for it. Uh, and, and with being the, the jock, I guess, that I was, kind of put that on the back burner for a while. And then I realized when I got to college that it was quite masculine, actually, to be wor working with leather and um, the, the harder materials, I guess, uh, to, to work with. And I really enjoyed making and designing bags. Um, the whole stick there was, uh, clients or girls would give me a, uh, a necktie from their father, an important male figure in their life. And I would take the necktie apart and then incorporate it into a handbag. So they were able to carry that person with them every day. And, oh, wow. You know, that's, that was something that I, I really love doing because I'm, I'm big on heritage that allowed me to kind of express it where you've got this really soft material next to something that's very delicate next to something that's very robust with, with the leathers that I was using, um, at the time. And it was just a nice contrast and obviously carrying a part of a, person that you love with you uh, every day is pretty awesome too. So yeah, yeah that's wonderful, man. Um, yeah. So, you, uh, 
you graduate uh, from KU. How did you navigate to your first, you know, I'll say W two job, and did you continue the your own business? How did, well, tell us about that. Yeah. So <laughs> going back to the entrepreneurial side, when I was running track and cross country at a younger age, I started a timing consulting company. Uh, with a buddy of mine, Brandon Daniels. Um, and so we did that actually through college on the weekends, uh, like many college students who worked several different things. And that was one that paid pretty darn well. And so after college, was, we were still doing that. And uh, I was working part-time. And then I realized I needed to get more into sales and build a network uh, because that's the biggest thing I didn't have. I wasn't a fraternity and I really didn't take advantage of the college experience with the networking side of things. So I got into sales working with a company called Astor and Black. And at the timing consulting company, well, we did too much consulting where we consulted ourselves out of business. And at the time, you guys, everybody was wearing suits to the office. And I got into that business where I just started selling. I didn't know... I knew a fair amount about the tailoring industry. Uh, I spent quite a bit of time in London with my uncle who lives in North London called a town called oh, a park called Islington. And uh, I spent time in Savile Row summer between my junior and senior year of college. So that kind of got into the tailoring side where this company called Astor and Black out of Columbus, Ohio, um, they sold they were a brand where they sold suits and they did all kinds of packaging. And it was like, looking back, it was, it was a sales machine. I sucked. <laughs> I was the worst salesperson ever. Um, and I, I knew a lot about clothing construction through my experiences and their garments were okay, but it, everything was manufactured in China and it was done very cheaply. And uh, not too long after that, I actually yeah, I got out of the clothing industry. Um, my fiance at the time, or maybe even just girlfriend, now wife, uh, told me I pretty much just need to go get a job. So <laughs> I did. I think I worked for a tech startup in there as well, a company called Zarly. Um, and I was terrible at that. And kind of lost, honestly, kind of lost my identity around that point about what I wanted to do with a career. And about that time, I realized I also needed to make money um, and wasn't doing that. And went to work at uh, Farmers Insurance, actually dealing with uh, insurance claims. And then uh, got onto a team where we did, uh, we dealt with really old claims and some really bad accidents and things. And um all the while, still sewing and and doing projects, um, I, I would modify shoes for guys. Um, I would uh, for old clients or a, a friend of mine at the time had a clothing company. I'd work for them as well, with him as well, um, helping him out. And then eventually, that led into me working for him. Um, and he, he was a Astor and Black employee as well, or. We were all 1099. Um, and so he offered me to join him. And I said yes, because he matched what I was making at my job. And I went full time back into the clothing world, um, which was 
much needed. It's where I needed to be. <laughs> I mean, it's, I, I, when I, when I say I lost my identity, I kind of, I, I got it back at that point. It was like, this is who I am. And, um, started to really push the envelope with what tailoring is and what it meant to me, um, along with obviously the sales side and, and fashion. Um, but yeah, that was a roundabout way, really oh, long-winded yeah. answer to your question. Yeah, it's all good. All good. So you, I mean, you obviously have high standards, you know, we're going to get into your, your current company and, you know, the, the quality of the, what you make, but you, do you think at Zarly as well as Astor and Black, you, you know, because at Astor Black, the quality wasn't good in the terms of the clothes or just the quality to your standards. Did you, did you suck at selling because you didn't really believe in the product or you didn't have a passion for it? Was that, was that the cause of it? You think? That is funny. You mentioned belief because I, I tell that to my wife all the time because we, she's also in sales and we talk about, you know, the best way to sell and, it's really believing in the product that you're selling um, because then you're not selling it. It, it. it kind of becomes a part of you. Um, and yeah, I, I did not believe in that product or that company um, and, and kind of fell into the same with the, the last company I worked for. It was the, uh, I, I knew that there was better ways to do things and yeah, it, you, you, it's hard to find that passion and that love and, and not that you can't, and, and accounting jobs and things like that, because there are aspects that, you know, if you believe that you're doing something good to help people, like there's a lot of reward to that. And I now, yeah, have got to a point where I really believe in the product and, and kind of success starts following that. Yeah, no, I, I definitely agree. Um, so you worked for, you know, a couple different clothing companies then, and then in, you, then you launch your current company, Charles and Richards, what was the thought process behind that? And what made you kind of take the leap? Well, I, there's twofold. Um, I, I had a traumatic brain injury back in 2016. Um, and I wasn't able to work um, full time for a long time. Uh, and I honestly still don't. <laughs> I work as much as, as I mentally can, um, you know, running your own company, you, you have to sacrifice a lot and do a lot. Um, so that was one thing and not being able to, to give a hundred percent at the level I was to, to my previous employer. Uh, but also that yearning for the higher quality. I, I knew that there are better ways while I know, um, how, how, clothes should be made and how I believed that the product should be. And um, the previous company didn't want to go down that route. They wanted to keep things the way they were, which rightfully so, keep it simple. And that's right around the time where I took the leap and I went to Italy um, to work with some contacts over there on launching a company. Um, so that was kind of the again, the twofold with not having the the mental capacity to be a full-time employee for somebody and also wanting it to be a product I really believed in. Yeah. So, I mean, that's, I mean, that's, you know, it's, it's one thing starting a company, you know, probably you're in your least probably late twenties, possibly early thirties um, at this time. But, you know, like 
to do it like internationally. <laughs> and I know that's where the clothing, you know, you know, if you go to London or, you know, Italy, Milan or wherever, but I mean, did you have any fear or just because you had been to Italy, you stayed as a foreign exchange student. I think as we chatted over coffee, you went during your KU uh, college experience, you did a study abroad program was, did you have fear? I think my wife had all the fear. <laughs> uh, I, I am extremely fortunate that she's she's got a very, very good career and and she is also very, very supportive. Um, yeah, there there was fear, um, but at the same time, the best things in life worth doing take a lot of hard work and effort and doing the things that nobody else will. And you can launch a fashion company today with no experience and find a plethora of manufacturers in Asia uh, and and possibly some in Europe. But yeah, I, I just delved down that road of finding the best possible people to make the best possible product. And I knew that it would eventually work out um, with the people I was working with over there. So it was, yeah, looking back, I, I think I was... Yeah, I really wasn't super worried uh, that eventually it would work out. It just took a lot longer than I anticipated. So usually I ask people that, you know, take the leap or, or you know, even if they stayed in a, I'll say, corporate career, you know, who are their mentors? So, but since this, we're talking fashion, what, who did you model yourself after in terms of, you know, from a business perspective, did you have any role models and uh, that you learned from and or you just kind of just uh, jumped yeah. off the high dive alone i i really just jumped off the high dive i do I, I knew that i there there are a lot of people in the space i operate and again there's no barriers to entry just to open a company to manufacture and to provide the quality and value that i do took took a lot of effort um and I knew that there were some brands out there that did a pretty good job. So like modeling quasi after them um, was good. You know, Ralph Lauren, his brand was or is his lifestyle. And so I didn't want to just create something that didn't have an identity. And so I yeah, kind of looked at their company and what he had done and modeled it after that, along with uh, Brunello Cuccinelli. Is another brand that he is an amazing human being. Uh, he's a big philanthropist now, but also he's a he's a humanist, I guess is what he calls himself. Um, and we were able to visit them in uh, Solomeo, which is their headquarters in Italy, on my honeymoon, which my wife was super excited about. Um, <laughs> Well, it was pretty cool because when we got there, we you know we toured the to tour the village. He he restored this whole village, and again, going into the lifestyle, like he didn't create a brand; he created good for mankind. I mean, he he's impacted lots of lives, and in a great way um, through through the restoration of his village or his wife. I think it was his wife's village, uh, and employing a lot of the people in the area. Um, and I think his company's now valued at a few billion dollars or something like that. So he did, he did quite well. Um, but my wife ended up coming around as we were sitting with the, the employees eating lunch and they provide lunch 
to the employees every day. And it's like three courses. So it was like, it was, it was a really cool experience. And yeah, nice. I knew that that type of experience could be translated into you know, obviously the lifestyle brand that I wanted to create and giving people more than just clothes to wear. Um, and then I had, yeah, I had a business partner in Italy, Claudio. Um, and he, he kind of was a mentor. He's represented uh, 25 or so different companies that supply the Italian fashion industry. Um, and so we worked with um, a couple of people at Dolce & Gabbana uh, to develop a pattern that everything would kind of be based off of. So you develop a style, uh, if you will. And it, it had to be, yeah, super soft. So like I had these people, so you, you have this blend of a couple different ideas, um, you know, the lifestyle of Ralph Lauren and, and the luxury side of it. And then the humanistic standpoint of Brunella Cuccinelli and you kind of blend them for garments that are understated and not huge with brand, um, but also cater to a luxury lifestyle because that, that is the pinnacle. That is the best quality you can possibly provide is, is in a space where you know, the price points obviously are higher. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I've, I've, you know, visited obviously your website, uh, your Instagram. I mean, your, your clothing looks phenomenal, but you know, tell the audience, you know, kind of, you know, what you specialize in, what makes you different. And then we'll talk a little bit on uh, the, the pandemic and, you know, your pre pandemic uh, world and now the world you're living in now in terms of your company. Going back to the roots of like, having things made by hand going back to when I was four years old, sewing felt um, there's a lot that can be said about having things made truly by hand, not handmade on a machine, but truly by hand where they're stitched by hand. Uh, that quality can't be replicated by a machine. And so when, when I set out to do what I do now, I wanted to provide garments for guys on the go. And I say that because we live in flyover country. So I focused on uh, jackets and trousers mainly and, and shirts. And the way we make our shirts allow for guys to have a lot more movement. Um, we actually, I attach the arm after the body um, has, has been stitched. And what that does is it allows it to have a higher armhole, which gives you more movement and it doesn't pull the seam all the way down the side of the shirt. Um, and then the, the, the suiting, you know, the jackets are really soft. And what I mean by that is you, you have in the structure of a garment, you have a, a, a canvas with a horse hair is, is, is the best quality. And then on top of that, you'll have a felt chest piece to kind of give you a little bit of structure, but I do a very, very soft shoulder pad, uh, and shoulder and sometimes, well, most of the time nowadays, I do it much softer where I don't use a shoulder pad um, because the evolution of where things have come. But that's kind of where, you know, if people don't know me, that's making things for guys on the go that they can be comfortable in from 6 a.m. till 2 a.m. the next day. You know, if you fly to Chicago for the day and you've got appointments all day and you get the late flight out at 11.45 midnight and you get home at 2 a.m., like, you need to be comfortable that whole time. Yeah. And so when I set out to, to create Charles and Richards, it was with that person in mind because you need to be comfortable because if you're comfortable and you look good, you're going to sell the shit out of anything. Like right. 
the, the, the confidence factor. Um, and so, yeah, mainly focus on at the time, at the time I launched, um, sport coats, suits, shirts, and overcoats. Um, and then a little bit in the accessories with, with some handmade ties from Naples that kind of went along with everything. So, and and everything's custom. So what was the process of somebody coming in to, to buying a sports coat and a pair of slacks? Like, uh, what was that process for them? Yeah. So originally it was all concierge. So I'd go to guys' homes and offices. Um, and that presented its own challenges because guys are having me come into their, their space and I could only take so much with me and they didn't have the full brand appeal at the time. So I'd go to their homes and offices with fabric books and do the whole traveling salesman type thing where I'd measure them up. We'd talk about fit and, and how they wanted garments to be. I'd make a lot of notes on their posture, body type, build, um, any injuries um, to, to aid and fit, how things need to be offset. And then, yeah, they would pick out the fabrics of the garments that they wanted to make. Um, usually we'd sit down and look at suiting fabrics and you would pick out a couple suits and then a couple jackets and then uh, some shirts and kind of have it all blend together where we create kind of the, the first appointment, the beginnings of a wardrobe. Um, and then from there, once fit, we get the fit dialed in perfectly, then we, we add a lot more things to their closet and, and hopefully they, they are outfitted fully by Charles and Richards. Uh, Charles and Richards, where did, where did the name uh, originate from? Yeah, my grandfather, the TWA guy, he uh, his name was Charles. So, And then my other grandfather is Richard. And when I put the two names together, Charles and Richard, I just like the sound of Richards better. So yeah, Charles and Richards. And we were <laughs> some guys that have come in. They're like, you need to, to delineate your some more casual stuff that I do now from, from the more formal. And they're like, you should do it Chucky and Dick. I'm like, I, I, I don't like that. No, we're going to keep it just Chucky and Dick's to go with the Richard Richards. Right. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) So yeah, that's, that's where the names came from. Uh, Again, going back to the heritage side, my grandfather wasn't the most loving person, um, but he, uh, Richard, that is, but he dressed very well. He was a lobbyist and uh, he taught me about quality. Um, And at the time, you know, Allen Edmonds was a very, very quality brand uh, made up in Wisconsin and they, they did a really good job. And that's the shoes he wore. Um, And his suits, I believe were made by Hickey Freeman at the time out of uh, New York. And yeah, he just taught me that you buy once and you buy quality and it kind of becomes you. So What a great then, way to honor your grandparents. I mean, your yeah, and then, yeah. Charles was Charles was awesome. Unfortunately, didn't know him super well uh, before he passed, but at a, a little bit younger age. But yeah, it's nice to have a little bit of heritage there. Yeah. So where are you at now? You know, and what was the pivot? Big pivot during uh, post pandemic. Yeah. So during the pandemic, um, guys weren't buying suits, <laughs> and events stopped happening. So tuxedos went away. But the shift to more casual really made me pivot into the lifestyle brand. Um, it went away from just suit shirts, jackets, and trousers to now I we I make 
tennis shoes. Um, we've got a small workshop in uh, near Ancona, Italy, in a town called Monte Granero, which is like the shoe capital of Italy. There's tons of shoe workshops there. Um, and they, they, it's a son and his dad, and they make my shoes by hand, literally. Um, it's a really awesome process, but they do anything from tuxedo loafers to boots for riding horses or hunting to uh, tennis shoes. And so, you know, catering to the guys that now the work environment is, hey, I'm working from home, not really traveling much. Um, we don't know what's going to happen, but some of the guys I worked with were well to do enough where it didn't really phase them. So they were just, you know, adding new things, but on the more casual side. And then as the world came back, it really pushed it to where guys are now wearing jeans and jackets at the time, you know, early 2022. Guys are really pushing the envelope with fun jackets, um, you know, classic dress shirts still, but toned down with jeans and maybe a pair of my tennis shoes or uh, a pair of pair of boots. So instead of a sale just being a suit, it's now in a culmination of a bunch of different items um, that guys like to have where it puts together a fuller look and also adds more versatility. Um, so that by the world shutting down, like everybody experienced, uh, made me reevaluate what the lifestyle brand, like what, what is it to be a part of Charles and Richards? And it is to be versatile, it, to, to be able to go from your office to your place of leisure, whether it be a hunting trip with your buddies or your beach house or a vacation with you, a weekend away with your wife, you needed to have the attire and, you know, the, the complete look to accomplish all of that. And, and I developed different things to, to cater to those needs. And each garment is, is designed specifically for each client. So, you know, guys come to me for jeans, the same price they can buy off the rack at a Nordstrom and they can get a fantastic Italian denim from me for about the same price, but it's, made for them and they get to pick out you know the the, the color and the wash and all the other stuff yeah. um and you know golf attire is the same way you get everybody's always looking for something that's a little bit different than the next guy and what better way to have it than have your tailor make your golf attire and that's uh, a segment that's definitely started to pick up yeah that's a, that's a great and and now you no longer uh, go to clients homes you're you're in a vault right you, yes you do all the fittings yeah i was i was very fortunate a good friend of mine offered uh offered a space up for me um he bought a building and there was nobody in the basement and i came to tour the building when he bought it and i said hey i want to go to the vault and he kind of laughed at me because it was storage you know, carpet floor drop ceiling and you know these god awful fluorescent lights. And I tore everything out, left the concrete, uh, put flooring in, um, rehabbed some furniture, and found some vintage pieces to to put in to where guys came in, and it it felt like an escape from the everyday. So yeah, guys, guys now are more comfortable coming here, having a cocktail because we do enjoy whiskey, and uh, sitting down talking about life. And designing clothes, um, yeah, and designing their appearance and and how they show themselves to the outside world. So it's it's pretty awesome having the space. 
Yeah, it's real cool. I, I uh, just to clarify, because I had asked you when we had coffee workshops, you've mentioned a couple of times. That's really kind of where the the manufacturing sites or, or workshops. Is that correct? Yeah. So the, yeah. we've got. I call them workshops because they are very small. Um, Italy still has this cottage industry mm-hmm. where you know the sweater. I, I work with some cashmere companies where we literally have uh, women because usually it's stay at home moms um, while their kids are at school, they would have a knitting machine in their house and they would throw a shuttle back and forth and knit sweaters out of this cashmere. And it's, you get these small imperfections with it and the quality is just absolutely impeccable. But again, you're talking about one off one at a time, one person, um, and they're actually, we, we contracted with them uh, ever since we've, uh, my, my former partner had acquired a, a smaller manufacturer, but there's still like 10 employees. So these aren't huge factories, you right, know, right. Yeah. when people talk about like China, you know, you, right. I could name 20 different Chinese tailoring companies that um, have several hundred, if not thousand employees. We have we're down to two master tailors now at the, uh, the suiting work or the, the tailored workshop and uh, down to two cutters. Um, and then we've got some, some women that sew the buttons and buttonholes uh, and some other sewers, but it's yeah, still very, very small. Yeah. And Kyle, I don't know why I'm picking on you today. Cause again, I, this is another Mike Wallace, just really probing. So I swear at some point, like, the sizes change for men, like, you know, like in the nineties or late eighties, I don't know, you know, a large was a large, a 34 waist was a 34 waist, but it seems like now it's like, you know, you have to, sometimes I wear a large in something, sometimes it's an extra large. So is there any, you know, what's the conspiracy theory around that? Or just Americans are too obese so that, they're happier making a large bigger so the person still wears a large. I, I don't know. We we are unfortunately a very large country. Um, and I'm not talking about population wise. I'm talking about personal size, you know, weight. First of all, there is no standard. Uh, there's, there's allowances that companies do over skin measurements and they vary greatly between each brand. And when you yeah, there's a lot of detail with it, but yeah, they just they vary greatly between one brand to the next. You'll have a little more consistency with European brands with European sizing because they have more standardized allowances. Now you'll have you'll still have changes because you know, some garments are made to be worn bigger than others, but in general, with the European sizing, it's much more exacting um, than the American small, medium, large, where, yeah, larges have gotten bigger. Yeah, but I think you've made a good point, though. I mean, there's less brands back then, too. So there's probably more consistency just because of a small number of manufacturers. So now that's expanded. So that I never thought about that aspect. And it did remind me of a, I'll have to tell my Italian buying underwear in Italy story just offline, I guess. Well, you know, I don't want to scare too many people away from the podcast. (laughs) I think I might have a similar one. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, 
Kyle, there's two groups I love to help on the podcast, which is, you know, uh, leadership advice from uh, great people like yourself. So one is that recent college graduates graduating from KU or K-State, MU, wherever, Avila, Manhattan College. And, you know, you, you get a degree and you're ready to go out in your first corporate job or whatever job, first job, professional job. What advice do you have for that uh, group of people as they start their professional journey? We'll start with, you don't know. You don't know a lot of things and you have to listen. Um, that's one thing I wish I would have had or learned is that you just need to be observant and talk less, and listen more. Um, and it's amazing what opportunities are out there will present themselves when you just stop and open your eyes. Yeah, love it. Um, the second group is, you know, you know, once you start your career, you usually have people reporting to you from an HR perspective, so you're not in charge of anyone. So once you get that leadership, first leadership position, and now people report to you and you're responsible for a team of people, what advice do you have for that group of people as they begin their leadership journey? You treat people how you want to be treated. Um, you know, I'm right now, it's just me with Charles and Richards, but, you know, during the pandemic, we had logistics people in Italy that helped out. And, you know, I, I have a lot of contract workers um, that work with me and being sympathetic to their situations. And obviously there's a degree of empathy as well, but, but also pushing people in a way to where they're going to realize they can do so much more. That's what I found. I've, I've, we had a logistics guy in Italy and he's moved on to a different different career. Um, but you know, he learned so much while he was with us and it's really cool to, to see that development. So you're really not in charge of those people. You're developing those people, you know, if you, they bring certain things to the table and you, you need to see what their strengths are and, and play to those. Um, yeah, the whole corporate world though today, I mean, I, we won't delve into that too much, but, um, you know, shooting people straight is is something that isn't uh, isn't done quite as much anymore, and I think that we should really go back to that. Yeah, because pussyfooting around subjects is not a way to create or foster leaders of tomorrow. And that's essentially, as a leader, you you want to do that. Um, I know that was a roundabout. Yeah, no, I love it. Yeah, no, I think it's great advice. Um, well, Kyle, thank you so much for being on the corporate couch. I love your story. I'm excited to see how far you take uh, Charles and, and Richards. Uh, and uh, and I just uh, love your clothing line. And uh, and I'll have to get to the vault uh, for some uh, bourbon real soon. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. And uh, yeah, hopefully we'll be able to do another one of these when we've got 30 or 40 employees and things are a little bit more hectic around here. Yeah, I love it. Have a great rest of the afternoon. All right, you too. Thanks. Oh, there's so many things I want to talk about with Kyle. Uh, you know, a little different guest in, in terms of a career uh, trajectory, but, you know, he just the the love of clothing and tailoring, you know, he started sewing at four years old. His uh, grandmother worked at Nell Reed, which is a, unbelievable story uh, started a women's dress company in 1919 so she's one of the i'll say first female entrepreneur successful so built a great business that nell reed was in business for you know 50 years after that i believe so 
yeah, it just a crazy that he just fell into it. Like a lot of the guests we had, you know, they've gone through a different, you know, career path and turns and twists, but he was basically dead on into the clothing industry, traveled internationally as a high school exchange student to Italy. In college, he did a study abroad in Italy. Of course, Italians are the greatest, you know, clothing designers. Of course tailors you know and you know he said he fell in love with uh with la dolce vita so i, I love that line but you know the other thing I, you know he he started his own company and when i asked him why you know there's two reasons so he had a in 2016 had a traumatic brain injury that still impacts him to this day so when he started his company charles and richards actually named for his two grandfathers um it was for two reasons. He was yearning for greater quality product, you know, in terms of the quality of the, the cloth and the design and things like that. But I thought it was very, um, I don't know if noble's the right word, but um, doing the right thing. He he knew he could not give 100% to his current employer yeah. because of his traumatic brain injury. Um, so he thought, let me just go out on my own for those two reasons and start this company, which I really thought was phenomenal. And, you know, I've been to the website and the clothing quality just looks amazing. And, um, I can't wait to visit it. And plus they have bourbon. So that's always good. Can't, while you're... can't beat that. Right? No. Yeah. Joe, what did you take out of the episode with go, Kyle? Go buy some clothes and get some bourbon at the same time. How, how could it be any better than that? Exactly. This was an amazing interview and certainly one of the most unique interviews that we've ever had. Kyle isn't uh, a C-suite executive like a lot of the people that we've talked to. So he, he doesn't have the experience and all the leadership and everything, but he's an incredible human being and has an incredible story and an incredible entrepreneur and just a unique experience, um, which just shows what people can come to expect on the corporate couch that we bring a little bit of everybody to the couch to talk about their lives and talk about their experiences. He took neckties from women from their father and made them into handbags. I mean, how do you get more unique and more loving than than that? that there's not very many people that could put that kind of thing on their resume. I think. Yeah, that these people had passed. So uh -huh. was a, yeah, the, uh, to do that because they could carry the memory of that uh, deceased loved one. And you know, I've heard of people like taking a stone from their grandmother's wedding ring and making it into a necklace or something like that. Uh, I've never heard of, of what he has done before, and I just that just adds to the uniqueness and the the charm of uh, this kind of interview is just amazing. Another thing about this interview that was interesting is he didn't mention this quote, but the quote of do what you love and you'll never work a day in your life is certainly true in Kyle's life. He, uh, he tried several different things. He tried in sales and was not particularly successful at that and tried a couple of other things and finally realized that he had to go back to what he learned when he was four years old from his grandmother, and that's the sewing experiences. He needed to manufacture and design um, men's clothing. And that, that's what he needed to do with his, with his life. 
Uh, and uh, he is apparently incredibly successful at doing that. Uh, that just tells all of our, screams to our audience that that's what you need to do. Find what it is that you love doing and, and all of a sudden you don't have a job anymore. People just pay you for doing what you love doing. Uh, I found that true to a certain extent in my own life and that's definitely true or should be definitely true for everybody in our audience. I totally agree. I totally agree. And would it would it have been devastating when I asked him the question, were you the best dressed in your senior class? <laughs> he said no. I mean, that would have been devastating, but, but I had was. a good feeling. <laughs> he was, and you were course. too. <laughs> and I was too. There you go. But I had a very low bar. I'm sure Kyle <laughs> did not. So um, very, yeah, I'd love the conversation with him, love his story and... Um, Love that it gets to go to Italy uh, two or three times a year. <laughs> Wouldn't that be cool? I mean, I mean, and and that's his job. He gets paid to do that. That's it's wonderful. I love it. Yes, Joe. What leadership advice would you want to uh, impart on our great audience today? We are going to go to that great philosopher named Stephen Wright today, who one time said, "82 point seven percent of all statistics are made up." on the spot. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of The Corporate Couch. If you enjoy the podcast, I would love for you to take two minutes out of your day to rate us five stars and write a review. Please join me next week to learn from another great leader sharing their professional journey and insights.